here. Welcome to Porsche Talk Podcast. You might find me on various social media under Mark and Cars and as usual, joined by Ajmal. Hello, I'm Ajmal, Black Up Driver on Instagram and sometimes on YouTube. And we're here again on our Porsche Talk Podcast, Talking Nonsense. We have someone pretty exciting for you, I reckon, Ajmal, as a guest. Yeah, I've I've been, you know, campaigning to get this guest on. And uh, and here he is, Magnus. Hey, mate. Good day, Mark. Good day, Ishmael. How are you doing? <laughs> great. great. It's great to have you <laughs> on. From downtown LA. It's like a global affair right now. It is. And like all three corners of the world. Brits Absolutely. abroad and all that. <laughs> well, we've had a few people on that you know. Uh, we've had Bart on, um, who messaged you. Uh, we've had uh, Lara, that Porsche girl on. We've had Brock. 996 road trip. Uh, you probably saw him at uh, Concourse d'Elegance recently, Elegance recently. Um, and yeah, we've yeah. been campaigning for ages to get you on. And obviously, being from being a Brit, British abroad, I've wanted to quiz you on uh, what it's like being a Brit, British abroad. Uh, but we'd, we're very grateful for you to take the time to come and talk to us. Well, thanks for campaigning. You know, it was just a simple email. That was all it is. So, uh, Happy to be here, happy to talk whatever it is we're going to talk about, down under, fish and chips, Porsches, whatever it may be, cars and coffee. So uh, let's rock and roll. Let's start with down under. Down under. You've been here a couple of times. You know, I've watched a lot of Mel Gibson films, Crocodile Dundee, yeah, ACDC, you know, I've been down under twice. I went down there first time in 2016 to Sydney for the Rent Sport reunion down at Sydney Motorsports Park. Sydney's a great town. It was weird. You know, when I first went there, I'd seen all these, you know, sort of Mad Max type films. And I thought Australia was real outlaw, you know, Crocodile Dundee. And then I get to Sydney and Sydney's, you know, beautiful town, city, reminded me of if LA and San Francisco had a baby, you know, just really beautiful old Victorian homes. Of course, I did an outlaw gathering under the bridge. I drove to Bathurst. I went to Sydney Motorsports Park. But what really got me about Australia were the speed cameras everywhere. You know, this whole Mad Max outlaw fever thing. I'm like, it does not exist there. You know, I drove from Sydney to Bathurst on that Belzer Park Parkway that goes over yeah, great road. nowhere. And there's speed cameras on that road. Yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. speed cameras down under? <clears throat> it's a police state, what do I say? You know, it's pretty disappointing. And it, I think that would explain why every time I listen to anyone or watch a video of anyone in LA, you know, everybody's driving as they would like to in the canyons, but every time, you can't do it here in Australia. And the only place you no, can. No, that was my biggest surprise. I mean, the road, that Bells of Pine Parkway, which goes yeah. to Bathurst, yeah, is such an awesome road. But it was like, I mean, I sort of got it in Sydney, even though, see, the great thing about LA is there are no speed cameras here. But yeah. Sydney, it was like everywhere you went, you know, and I was making this, I ended up making a video called Aussie Outlaw that started at Auto House Hamilton in Sydney and drove to Bathurst. I did a lap of Bathurst and then drove back. But we did a shot going over the uh, Sydney uh, Harbour Bridge with a drone, but just getting just getting on and off that bridge was kind of tricky, you know, just to loop around and come back and go over it. But uh, it was a great experience. The Rensport reunion at Sydney Motorsports Park was great. 
but the culture and the crowd and the people in Sydney. You know, I did an outlaw gathering under that Sydney uh, bridge by the Opera House. It was just mega. And then I went back, I guess, in 2018, 2019, and I drove across Australia from Perth all the way across in a, a Porsche Cayenne expedition. And once you get out of the cities, like you don't have to get more than like 30 miles from the coast. There's just a whole lot of nothing except dead kangaroos. And driving all the way across there, we went, we went over Big Red, the Big Red Rock, uh, went through the Simpson Desert. I guess it's Simpson Desert, Ayers Rock. Went to Uluru, went to the big, big, uh, what's the big rock? No, Ayers Rock, right? It's sure. a big mound. Yes. We went mm -hmm. in there. So, yeah, it was a fascinating, fascinating place for sure. Big road. Also, well, Mark, one of the things that we wanted to talk to Magnus about is, it just leads on nicely, is about the thing. So in L.A., uh, there is this, you know, you, you watch any videos, you see anybody on social media, they're filming themselves out and about, whether it's during the night, during the day. And you know that they're holding the camera, they're filming themselves, they're filming the road, they're filming other road users. And I'm just there going, if I did that in the UK, someone would report me and there'd be a knock at the door, I'd get arrested. How, do, how does that work in LA? Well, completely different environment. I suppose in a way it's the ultimate freedom to sort of go wherever you want and do whatever you want, weirdly. You know, people tend to think America's super controlled and restricted, but it's not really, it's the Wild West out here. You know, I was super surprised in Australia with the stories I just told. Whenever I go to England, I'm like just super surprised how restricted it is there. One of my all-time most annoying drives, like the drive across Australia in the Cayenne top 10 drive. I also have an awesome drive down in Colombia from Bogota to Medellin in a Porsche Cayenne top 10 drive. <laughs> One of my most irritating drives is actually in England from Goodwood to Sheffield on a Sunday. Porsche Cars GB had loaned me, you know, uh, whatever the current car was back then. This is circa 2017, I guess. And I drove, I went to Goodwood, Festival of Speed, and I left on a Sunday. So you know how this story is going to end up. I left Goodwood around three on a Sunday and drove to Sheffield. And talk about a most annoying drive. First of all, just getting out of Goodwood down those little country lanes with caravans and tractors and no one lets you pass. Then getting on the motorway, finding my way to the M1 with this restricted average speed where, you know, the camera tags you coming in and you, you have to do no more than 35 miles an hour for 50 miles and there's, you know, all the road is bollard off, but no one's working because it's England on a Sunday, right? So there's no road works there. There's cameras everywhere. It was about a six-hour drive. I don't know how many miles it was. It wasn't actually that as far as you think, you know, because England obviously can fit it into California. You know, I'm used to doing, like recently we drove from LA to Mohab. It's 800 miles. You know, we took the scenic route. We stopped off in a few places and we did it in 12 hours. You know, we weren't necessarily speeding, but we covered 800 miles, multiple states, stopped off. We did it in 12 hours. In England, for me to go 200 miles on a Sunday afternoon with these restricted speeds, it was just the most irritating thing. And in England, it's, it's you know, 
In LA, you can sort of drive wherever you want on the freeway. You know, there is no fast lane, slow lane, overtaking lane. You can weave wherever you want. So if you're a spirited driver, you know, you duck and weave and ice. And in England, no one allows you to do that. They get all upset if you're in the, I guess, if you're in the right-hand lane for too long, you don't pull back in and they're flashing you with the lights. There's a lot more road rage, I find, in England than there is in anywhere I've driven in America. And what I also find in England is people get really upset if you try and pull a move and cut in front of them, they would sooner run into you rather than let you in. This is in my experience. In LA, people say LA are bad drivers. I suppose to a certain degree that element is everywhere. But there aren't the restrictions that I've just described of speed cameras, you know, in the middle of nowhere. That doesn't really happen here. You know, I grew up in Sheffield. We've got this great road called the Snake. It goes from Sheffield basically over the Pennines, past Lady Bound, drops down into Glossop. It's a, the fun shortcut to Manchester. There's now speed cameras on this road. So, you know, LA, uh, California, for the most part, anywhere in the States at this point in time, they don't have speed cameras. So you're just able to slice and dice and do what you want with more freedom. Now, granted, there's this crazy street takeover thing that's happening now that you might have seen with cars and bikes basically blocking intersections and doing donuts and wheelers and all that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, that does seem a little crazy, but just a completely different environment, super not restricted. And so to me, that is like, I always talk about the freedom is getting out and driving, going wherever you want to go at whatever pace you want to go at. And, you know, I spent 19 years in Sheffield and I've been in LA since 1986. So, 36 years in LA, 19 years in England. So I'm more Americanized than I am Anglophile, even though I'm still dual, dual citizen, UK passport. But it, it always surprises me when I talk to anyone in England or anyone in Europe. First of all, we can drive 365 days a year here in LA, in Southern California. No one's putting their car away in October, November for the winter. You know, that doesn't exist. No one's swapping over to winter snow tires. That doesn't exist. You know, so ultimately for a car guy, LA is the car culture capital of the world in my experience. There are more accessibility to world-class driving roads, ocean, desert, mountain. You can do it in a day. Some parts of the world, you might have one or two of those elements, but you won't have all three of them in a drivable 200-mile radius that you'll have in here. Then factor in cool cars, you know, just a common here. Every sort of car company has got some presence here. And when it comes to building within 50 miles of where I'm sat, you can get whatever you want built, fabricated, powder-coated, uh, chrome-plated, painted, manufactured, 3D printed. You don't have to, you know, it amazes me how stuff gets done in England because normally the scenario that I'm a specialty independent company that's more often than not located in a cool old converted farmhouse down a dirt country road in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, somehow they get stuff done, but it's just a different environment here in LA. Do you find... Sorry, go on. Sorry, go on. Um, well, I was just going to say, because there's the thing, you know, whenever you see the car programs that are based out of the US when, uh, you know, fast and loud or whatever it might be, uh, even when Wheeler Dealers was over there, that they did. They they just within walking distance of where their work, workshop was, there was a machine shop. You can get anything made. And you're right, over here, everything's so difficult and so expensive. And sometimes you think, what's the point? 
and with with the, with the roads the way they are, they've done this thing now. Even though, and I totally get that that journey up the M1. I used to go to Leeds for work quite a lot, and I used to go up that M1, and it was just the most boring, mind-numbing, fifty-mile-an-hour drive that I ever had. But now, what they've done is they've made smart motorways, and it means that even where there's no roadworks, no restrictions, there's still cameras everywhere when you do, and you need to do seventy miles an hour. Uh, but I'm very lucky. I live out in the sticks, so, um, and I can, there's country lanes right on my doorstep. But I've got that other thing that you just mentioned. <laughs> my car is in storage because it's been in storage for the winter, and I still haven't taken it out. Um, I, although I do need to ask you, actually, Magnus, about, because my car is a 1966 Porsche 912. Oh, congrats. Oh, What's your opinion on those? Mine's a left-hand drive. It's uh, Italian delivered, and I love it. Um, but because you're pure 911, and I remember you said that you wanted one of each from 64 to 73. Um, right. And you'd and but was it? Do you have any experience of a 912? Because I know Jerry Seinfeld keeps going on about how brilliant they are. Yeah, I've had a few. I've restored a few. You know, I always start off a 912-related question this way. I've restored two or three of them. One of them was a light ivory three-gauge 65. I restored a 66, Agar Blue. I've had a bunch of them because when I started collecting stuff, I was really into short wheelbase cars. You could pick 912s up for nothing. I mean, this was when I was buying 911s for 4,500 bucks, 7,500 bucks. So 912s, you know, I bought one for 2,500 bucks, which was the Agar Blue one that I restored. And the point to my ramble is, from a restoration point of view, they cost the exact same amount of money as a 911 to restore. You sort of go in a little naive thing, well, it's a four-banger, right? It's got to cost less than a, you know, a six-banger, but in reality, they don't. And as you know, everything else, pretty much for the most part, is the same as 911. So from a restoration point of view, they cost you the exact same amount of money. If you're doing it for pleasure, it doesn't matter. If people are doing it for a business, same amount of money, but you don't get the money back. But that aside, the driving pleasure of a 912 is they're all really fun, nimble little cars. So I've owned a few for me. Uh, I've never kept them, though. I always like keep the 911s for me. The perfect combo of a 912 is what I call a 912.6. You know, and that's when someone takes a 912 <laughs> that you bought for 2,500 bucks, and then you mat it to that, you know, 2-4 motor that you bought on a pallet for like 2500 bucks as well. And you put the two and two together and then you got a fun hot rod. You know, so 20 years ago, there was a lot of that type of stuff out there. You know, I've bought a lot of oddball cars because, you know, 20, 25 years ago when these cars were basically not worth much, you know, I had a 67, I had five 67s at one time. I'm now down to two. But I, I just pick them up. And a lot of them I was buying inexpensively because they weren't numbers matching motors. And the story would sort of be a familiar story. 25, 30 years ago, someone needs an engine rebuild in a 67S. And unless you were a real purist, you didn't really care. It might be one of those scenarios where I can rebuild the original motor for 10 grand. It's going to take six months. Or I've got this 2.4 T motor in the corner that I can drop in for two grand and you can have it next week. And it won't be quite as, you know, won't be quite the same, but yet you'll be back on the road for less money. So there was a lot of that happening with everything, especially 912s. So, you know, I've owned 912s that had 914 motors in it. You know, I've owned 912s that have got 912 motors in it. I've bought 912s with no motors for parts cars that I've cut up 
and used them on early 9-11s. I have a three-gauge 65-912 in my warehouse about 100 feet away, which is non-adjustable shocks really early, uh, early 65, that I think I got for like 800 bucks just as a parts car that I've been cutting off front clips, rear quarters. So, you know, I always say, it always annoys the 912 guys, but I always say 912s make great parts for 911s. You know, great parts cars for 911s. But I am joking. 912s obviously are fun, nimble cars to drive. Uh, for me, I just need a little more acceleration than what the average 912 uh, has, especially if you end up with a four-speed 912. They're not quite as much fun. Sure. Uh, but they are great because you can drive them sort of nine-tenths all the time. You know, it's what I call a flat-foot car where there's just enough power for it to be usable all the time. And I've always been more of a less-is-more type of guy anyway when it comes to anything that I've built. I'm not so much dropping the biggest horsepower motor. It's more I'm more about sticky tires, good brakes, handling, and maximize what I call the flat-foot capability. So from that point of view, 912s are great because you can sort of drive them 9, 10 tenths all the time, which you sort of have to do if you want to be on boil and make pace, in my experience, for the 912. Sorry, I just remember those lines, um, Magnus. The In the police states that both Ajmal and I live in, the like I've got a 356B, by the way, and one of the main reasons is for that flat foot experience you just mentioned, and I can do that in Australia without all those speed cameras hitting me up all the right. time. You know, and it happens up to 60 mile an hour. It's a whole, you know, bag of fun. But once you get into the, you know, a hot rodded 911 or even a modern water-cooled 911, you're dealing with another stratosphere of 150, 160, oh, sorry, uh, you know, up 80 to 110 mile an hour. And then that's when the police cameras, they really do like uh, raising revenue at that point. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm all about the flat foot capability. And you sort of hit the nail on the head of, you know, Everything that's coming out of every factory today is just way too much power for the availability of open, trouble, risk-free road. You talked about speed cameras, right? You know, I'm sat next to a GT2 back there. I don't know if you can see it. 2002 GT2. 20 years ago, this was king of the hill. It was Porsche's most performance-orientated car. Two-wheel drive manual, 450-ish horsepower. Today, that's one step above base level of a 992 C2, right? Same spec, two-wheel drive manual, 450 horsepower. But it's one step above base model. You know, the new King of the Hill Turbo S, 750 horsepower. But yet, where can you utilize that, really? I mean, triple-digit speeds come up so quick today in modern cars, but they feel so insulated that... 60 to 80 in your 912 that's rolling around on the 165, 70 profile tire on a four and a half inch wheel feels way more exciting than a buck 50 in a 992 does, right? So back to 912, you know, you're having a lot of fun under triple digit speed. You know, they don't really go much above. And if they do, they're just like a bus saw rattling and shaking around. So, you know, it's kind of horses for courses, really. Yeah, because I like that. That's exactly it. Because my 912, I'm driving it flat out all over the place. It, the smell, the noise, the slight terror of you're not completely in control, but you right. love it and you're not risking your license, the life, your, your life, 
the lives of others. We can talk about nine twelve, right? It, I mean, they cover all the five senses. You just said it. It's the smell, the sound, the feel, the vibration, the sight, the nostalgia, the emotion. It covers all those emotions. The new cut, they'll cover two of those emotions. You don't really smell a new car, right? You know, it's new car smell. You don't get out of it and reek of odor, oil, and gas, which you will. You know, it's like spilt coffee, sort of burnt rubber, moldy carpet, bit of rust, and then oil and gasoline just permeates every environment that you're in in a vintage car. So, you know, that to me is emotional connection to all things that are vintage, that are soul and character. And that's the one thing Porsche, they can't manufacture that and put it in a cup and go, here's soul and emotion. You know, they can they can go, okay, here's paint to sample, uh, spirulina green. You can paint your latest whatever in spirulina green and we'll call it a rare shade and it'll be awesome, right? And everyone will get all excited about it and, you know, tell all the friends at the Cars and Coffee that, it was paint to sample spirulina green, but it's not quite the same emotion. And to me, what's great about cars that I'm into, mostly Porsches, but there's a few other things, you know, it's an emotional connection to an environment that a new car, I don't think delivers to the same degree. Now, I, I agree with I that. Don't think, hang on, I've got to interrupt this. This is, look, both of you. I think we've got to overlook the most important thing in this conversation that the listeners can't see, and that is the fact that Magnus has a bottle of water with spirulina mix in it right next to him right now. I don't think... That's where to stay healthy right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's your breakfast, isn't Pretty it? Brilliant. I got spirulina, I got coffee. I can see that, yeah. They're balancing each other out. Like water. A water, coffee and a water. You've got to stay hydrated. You know, you've got to keep your beard fluffed. Yeah. Part of my morning routine, you've got to walk the dog. Yesterday, I got almost 16,000 steps in. That's quite a lot of steps. It is a big Yeah, it is, it is non-paint to sample spirulina green. <laughs> I'm, glad it isn't, I'm glad it isn't a paint sample that you're drinking right now. It's my pet peeve, this whole paint to sample special wishes. <laughs> you know, it's like, to me, I got a car and coffee, right? You know, one of my, uh, like, craziest stories, this is probably circa 20, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, you know, when lava orange was the must-have color. You know, I was once down in Florida. I got a champion, Florida, uh, champion Porsche. It's America's largest Porsche dealer at the time. They have a cars and coffee. I counted 24 GT3s, 24 of them, right? So they're pretty common. Yeah, 12 yeah. of them were lava orange. Oh. It goes, this is nothing special, nothing rare. It's quite common. What stands out in a sea of... 24 paint to sample, special wishes, rare shades. Show me one that's white, right? One that's white with no options. That's the rare car. I don't know how it is in your part of the world, but here everyone's hung up on their paint to sample, special wishes. I'm so special with my rare shade. But the real special one is the guy that just ordered one with no options. That's the one that stands out when people just love to sit around at cars and coffees, kicking tires, not really putting miles on their car because they don't want to devalue them, right? You know, it's got to be low mileage. You know, I recently acquired something I never thought I would own. 991 Turbo S. Ooh. Wasn't on my radar. I was looking for a 997 Turbo. Chronolo you know, 
got to have one of every model, but not in chronological order. Sometimes I'm into it, sometimes I'm not. But, you know, I get a hard on, got to have a 997 Turbo. I ask around. My buddy Paul Kramer, Auto Kennel, who if you ever want a car, you go to him, goes, I got something you're going to want, 991 Turbo S. I go, nah, I'm not really, not really interested. It wasn't even on my radar. I'd driven him, but never wanted to own one because it's a new Porsche to me. Sure. He goes, well, you're going to want this one. I go, why? He goes, well, it's one owner. It's got 161,000 miles on the clock and it's pennies on the dollar. But it has 50 pages of invoices. Whatever this car needed, the guy did. It wasn't like four bros thrashing the shit out of it, really smoking it. It was one mature owner that lived in Newport Beach, commuted to Beverly Hills freeway miles. He'd replaced the transmission two years prior when it had 120,000 miles on it. It wasn't under warranty. I guess the guy didn't like to use the brakes. He just preferred to downshift. And so, you know, transmission wasn't covered by a warranty. That was a 30 grand uh, invoice for him. Anyway, I ended up buying it for pennies on the dollar. Rollout factory, uh, rode him silver metallic, red uh, leather interior. And when I first got it, I didn't really love it. I didn't get out of it and look over my shoulder. Yeah, it did triple digit speeds, but it's everything we just talked about. I wasn't emotionally connected to it. It didn't seem unique. There's a bunch of them in LA. It was pretty disposable, sort of. It was an appliance. I called it my fast grocery getter appliance. But that trip to Moab, Utah, 800 miles in one day, didn't get out feeling beat up. My ears weren't ringing. My back didn't ache. My leg wasn't numb. I probably wouldn't want to do that driving a day in an air cool. Probably wouldn't want to do it in a GT3 because you'd be like, you know, shaking to death with the stiffness of it. And I finally realized for me, this is where a car such as a 991 Turbo S really excels. But the interesting point to it was when I started looking after I'd bought it, I go, I should just see what the market value of these cars are. And the average one I found had no more than 30,000 miles on it. And they were twice the price of what I paid for it. So it just goes to show no one wants a high mileage modern Porsche. That 996 GT2 I talked about, similar story. I'm a third owner, lifelong LA car, but I bought it was about 90,000 miles on it. Brought the price way down. So you know the bargains to be had out there if you don't care about mileage. And to me, this is a perfect example. I had a couple of buddies who had same spec car, but with 20, 25, 30,000 miles, which is average. Same price point, doubled what I paid for it. So it's like there are bargains to be had. And I sometimes think, like my 90,000 mile GT2 is really in no worse condition than my buddy's 25,000 mile one because it got driven. You know, it actually drove the same. It wasn't like any inferior performance. It was just, oh, there's some miles on the clock. And the point to my ramble, I suppose, is I always used to say the great thing about Porsche is you see a lot of high mileage Porsches because they were built to be driven. People bought them and drove them. This was true up to probably 10, 15 years ago. Now there's a new wave of Porsche ownership coming in where, like I've sort of been rambling about, people don't want to put miles on their car. They go, well, weren't they built to be driven? I get it. You own it. You can do whatever you want. It's like a piece of art. You don't have to drive it. But there is a trend of, Oh, I don't want to put miles on the car. I don't want to devalue it. In the value in smiles per mile, not what it may be when you eventually sell it. Memorable yeah. moments. I'm all about that. The memorable moments, the smiles per mile, the stories. When people want to show me their car with no miles on it, I got no interest in it. What's the point, right? To me, 
I love hearing the stories about you get pulled over or you broke down or you went on this epic road trip or it's a journey, right? The memories, yeah. they're only made by putting miles on, on the cars. Yeah, along, that topic, along that topic, um, Magnus, I, a car, this, is, this will link in quite nicely to some background for all of us, but about 2002, it would have been, I was fortunate enough to be, I was driving across the top of Italy into France and we pulled in just outside of Briançon in the Alps, the French Alps there, me and a friend of mine in a hire car. It was a Fiat or something like that. And as as we're there, a white, completely placid in dirt, flogged, pinging away, ripping through the mountains and then pulled up at the same place where we stopped to get a coffee was a Countach, Lamborghini Countach. It was the only time I'd ever seen a Countach actually driven the way they, I'm sure that the Lamborghini designers would have loved seeing the car. And it was so, like I went out a look, took some photos back of my old digital camera back then, and the car was a white one, but it looked grey. There was that much road grime on it. So I'll go and have a look, you know, because the scissor door was up because I got without getting a coffee, poked my nose in. 170,000 kilometres on a Countach. Wow, that's nuts yeah. on a Countach. Wow. Yeah, like I couldn't even believe it. You know, like to give you some perspective, Ajmal, that's what, uh, um, 100,000 miles. Okay, you know, and just seeing a Countach getting used like that, only one I've ever seen in my life that actually isn't pristine as, you know, and that, that's, that's some hard car, hard case too because those cars are not easy to get in and out of and drive. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I've driven a Countach, you know, it's like we'll all sort of have that fantasy for a minute of a Countach. <laughs> I drove one, it was like, I don't know if I'd want one, but it was on I do remember For me, it was awkward. You know, I was too big. My head was almost hitting the windshield. Couldn't really get my feet under feet the pedal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it didn't seem as nimble and fast as I thought it was going to be. But, of course, you had all the attention in the world on you, which is not always what you want either. But, yeah. Props to the bro for driving. Uh, oh, I was blown away. It was a uh, Belgian guy, actually, who uh, was on Belgian plates back then. But, look, the reason what I brought Puntage was my poster car. Like, you know, growing up, I had that, I had a Daytona and a 930, which leads me into your story about how the 930 impacted you the first time, you know, your introduction to Porsche was. Well, I've told that story a million times. It's, you know, I'm 10 years old. I go to the London Olds Court Motor Show with my dad, Porsche 930 Turbo on the stand, white martini stripe. End up coming back from that uh, London Olds Court Motor Show. I had the poster, the brochure. I wrote a letter to Porsche saying, hey, I want to design for you. True story. They wrote me back a few months later, essentially sent me some programs, brochures, and little letter said, essentially calls, you know, we appreciate your uh, passion for the brand or whatever it was, but the main part to the story was, you know, call us when you're older, which of course I never did. But when I think of Porsche, I do think of the iconic shape, you know, the 930 Turbo. It's been out in constant production since 1975. This is actually a 75 Turbo right there that I'm sat next to. That's a 77. So for me, you know, similar story. I think any kid growing up anywhere in the you know, 70s or 80s, chances are you have those three cars on your wall that you just mentioned. I was no different. You know what I mean? It's interesting that sort of the last hurrah for what appears to possibly be the internal combustion engine is everything other than, you know, the GT3 is really a turbo, right? You know, you've got the non-turbo turbos, the Carreras and the Carrera S's, which 
Porsche can't call them turbos because turbo just means top-level marketing now. It doesn't mean forced induction of an internal combustion engine from exhaust gases, right? Because, <laughs> hey, they can put a turbo badge on a Taycan, right? So the concept of turbocharging is a little bit like, you know, in the 80s when it could get a turbo hairdryer or a turbo razor or whatever it is. So to me, I like boost. You know, these early turbos, by today's standards, they have no power. They're a little bit like the 912 in that sense of, in U.S. spec, 240, rest of the world spec, 260 horsepower. This is nothing today, right? This is no power. Factor in, as we know, turbo lag, factor in tall gears. You know, the problem with early turbos, really, other than turbo lag, are tall gear ratios. You know, first gear, 50, second gear, 90, third gear, 120, fourth is the rest. You're always sort of in the wrong gear, you know, I tell this story all the time. You're cruising on the freeway doing, call it 70, in fourth gear. You shift down a third, there's nothing, really. You <laughs> almost have to shift down to second at like 60, 65 miles an hour, which is just completely opposite of what you'd ever do in a normally aspirated whatever car, right? You'd sure. be in third or fourth gear, just blimp the throttle, drop it away, you go. Not in an early turbo. If you're not in that small window of boost, which there's nothing below 3,000 RPM. So if you're chugging away in fourth gear, you cannot get down quick enough into the power back. So you really drive a turbo on boost. You never really short shift them. It's almost like you need to be in second gear on the freeway doing 70 if you want to have a chance of actually having some acceleration. You can't be caught in fourth gear doing 70 at like 2,000 RPM because you'll never get into the boost range. The similar story is cruising around town. You pretty much, second gear will do everything in a turbo because, you know, you come to a stop in second gear doing, call it rolling, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 miles an hour. you got to go down a first. You can't blip the throttle clutch in. You go try and go around the corner in second gear in a three liter early turbo, 20 miles an hour and accelerate out you could walk out of the corner quicker. <laughs> so the challenge with turbos is you always have to think RPM boost gear ratio. And, it, you know, so things like downshift into first, unless you're a rally driver on a really tight hairpin, you're never doing that in any other 911. But in a turbo, you got to go from second to first in an early four-speed one. So, you know, they're not necessarily great cars in the canyons, like my favorite twisty road, the Crest. The gear ratio is always slightly too tall for the rev RPM of the turns, you know. So they're an iconic car, and I love them. And they're a challenging car to actually hustle around at speed because of everything I just said. And then factor in the brakes are not good. You know, for whatever reason, even on sticky Hoosier rubber, they don't stop good. And they're not a heavy car. You know, it's got the same calipers you'd have on a, you know, a 24S or a 73 Carrera, which stops great on those cars that weigh about 2,200 pounds. These don't really weigh a ton more, but they just don't stop good. And then they tend to early three-liter non-intercooled cars, they tend to run hot, even when you're not on boost. You know, so you're constantly watching the temp gauge if you're stuck in traffic. You know, any other car I've got, even thrashing the shit out of it, they don't get above 210. But an early turbo stuck in traffic, you see 240, 250 quite often. 
And then yeah. he starts sweating a little bit as, oh, this thing's getting hot. <laughs> hot. You know, nothing's cooling it. It's just, you know, it's like a pressure cooker of temperature. So yeah. that's my experience on three-liter turbos and, and Porsche's use of the word turbo when they put it on an electric Taycan. Now, I, I, get, I get what you're saying about the long gears, because I've also got a, a 996, just a base career, a 996 manual. And like you say, with the roads over here, you can't really thrash it. Uh, first and second, yes. And I take my daughter swimming on a Saturday and we go out on the slip road for the motorway and I get up to the speed limit in second because yeah. it's the only place that I can actually really hammer it. First, second, and then... And then your fun's ball. over. That's it, you're straight and stop just going back a bit where you mileage, the mileage thing, that, that really just fucks me off part of my French, but where people buy the cars and then you're right, they're there to be driven, they're made to be enjoyed. You know, engineers and designers spend years and years evolving this design to something that's going to give you this joy and this invoke something in you. And people go, I want to put it in my garage and I don't want to put any miles on it and I don't want to get it scratched and because I'm going to save it for the next person. I went to the Porsche dealership in, in Reading near where I live and they had a 2019 911 Speedster. Gorgeous looking thing. Only manual car they have in the entire dealership. And so almost you know, three and a half years old, it had 622 miles on it. And you just think, what's well, the point? What is the point the yeah, and, and you know, my, my 996 has, like you say about accessibility, accessibility of power and accessibility of cars. My 996 has 157,000 miles on it. It's crusty as hell. I bought it for six and a half thousand pounds. And I've been driving it as my everyday car for three, nearly four years now. The amount of miles per smiles, as you say, it's just ridiculous how much it's cost me, how much I've spent on it, and how much I enjoy it. Just and I leave it wherever I want. It doesn't matter if it's got bird poo on it or whatever. Right. There's a lot of bang for the buck. And who cares about the headlights? You don't see them when you're driving, right? Exactly, exactly. That's, that's one of the main things that I always talk about. Well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, actually, because I know you've done loads of stuff, you know, I've seen a lot of your interviews and things like that. But there's a point, there's a, a period between you going to that Earl's Court show and then going to LA in 86. In that time, obviously, you got into the music thing, you were into running, you were doing all sorts of different things. And then, you know, you're also a bit bumming around a bit different jobs, but nothing really concrete. You had no real responsibility. But in your passion for cars because from a uk point of view it was a bit of a dead time i mean we made some seriously shit cars during that time what what how did your passion for cars evolve during that time or was it almost on pause until you went to la it was maybe it wasn't pause but i grew up you know my dad we my dad was a salesman i grew up in a working class environment so we never had a cool car he had company cars, right? So in England, I was there until I was 19 in Sheffield. I never had a driver's license. So I was exposed to motorsports through watching, you know, Grandstand and Formula One. And, you know, that era was great. You know, British motorsports is still sort of the epicenter of the world. So I watched a lot of motorsports on TV. I'd go to Donington, Mallory Park, Cadwell Park. You know, my, my dad was sort of mechanically minded. My uncle David, who was a graphic designer, had some success. So he had the cool car. My uncle Mick had an E-type Jag. But my uncle David, you know, who'd married my uh, sister, he had a Ferrari Dino, which he then traded into a 308 GTB. And so he sort of had the cool cars. 
but we never really went in him. You know, he, he was one of that was sort of fastidious and he was that guy that didn't really put miles on the cars, but we're aware of him. So London Oldscourt Court Motor Show, pivotal part to my life. I'm 10 years old, but I wasn't around cool cars per se. In Sheffield, you didn't see really cool cars very often. Like seeing a 924 was cool. You know, we weren't seeing 930 turbos on the road. You know, it was just a bunch of, you know, British cars of that era. Trying, you know, and they're all ropey and rusty, right? Stags and Jags and TR7s and Midgets and Sprites and, you know, the great British cars. But yep. what, you, you'd see those, but you wouldn't see exotic European cars. So I think I was on pause a little bit in the sense of, by the time I became a teenager, I'd been doing a lot of cross-country running, athletics, a little bit of success. Then 13, I get into heavy metal. 14, 15, go to shows. 15, 16, going down the pub. You know, left school at 15 on the dole. You know, my focus then wasn't so much fulfill my dream of getting a Porsche. It was, oh, I'm going to go see Motorhead and UFO and Saxon and Rainbow and I'm going to gigs and Donington. You know, I went to Monsters of Rock Festival at Donington 1982 when I was 15. I went back 84, Van Halen played, I was 17. So that sort of teenage period, call it the five years in Sheffield before I left, so 81 to 86, all I cared about were going to heavy metal shows, you know, spent a lot of time sneaking into the pub at 15, 16 years old. So growing my hair long, sort of trying to avoid arguing with my dad who would say, cut your hair and get a real job. I had no vision, no future. I wasn't going nowhere fast. You know, it wasn't like, here's my five-year program of where I'm going to be, school, university, college, high-paying job. None of that was on my radar. You know, so I left school at 15, almost 16, bummed around on the dole for a year, uh, sort of sex, drugs, rock and roll, you can call it, Sheffield style, full Monty fever. You know, my life was a bit like full Monty, minus the, uh, you know, the, the male stripping going on. And then, you know, I came to the States when I was 19, did this thing called Camp America. And that represented the ultimate freedom. I've talked about this often, but in Sheffield, I was still living at home with my mum and dad, didn't have a car, didn't have a driver's license, didn't have a proper job, no adult responsibility. Coming to America, I didn't really have much more, but I had the ultimate freedom of no one really telling me, you know, you have to be home by a certain time. And if you're living under our roof, you have to abide by these rules. So you got to remember LA, 86, 87, everything I'd ever sort of grown up watching on TV, TV shows, they're all shot in LA. You know, the music I was listening to at that time, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Glam Rock, the epicenter was L.A. So for me, that period of time of arriving in L.A. on a Trailways bus, honestly, less than a mile from where I'm now sat, was like dream come true. That was my, for a, a couple of years, that was my Woodstock in the sense of that was my era of ultimate freedom, no responsibility. Cars weren't a factor into it at that point. It was just I'm 19, 20, 21 living the life in L.A., escaped out of Sheffield, you know, story. And it was just ultimate freedom. The car sort of came a little bit later, you know, early 90s when I was 25. I acquired my first Porsche in 1992. That was a 74 slant nose conversion. I paid 7,500 bucks for it. But that was the third car I ever owned. The first car I ever bought, I guess I bought it in, in 1988. 
was a 1977 Toyota Corolla 2TC. I paid 200 bucks for it, drove it around without a driver's license for about nine months, took my California driver's test in it in Santa Monica. In I guess it was 88, because I still have my driver's license. I was 21 years old. That's 88. It's going back quite a long time now. You know, it's like <laughs> 34 years ago. Second car I ever bought was probably in 1990, 91. I got a Saab 900 Turbo. That was Ooh. like the architect's car, right? You know, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that, that was a little bit of success to buy a Saab 900 SPG Turbo, which was a fun car. But uh, the ultimate sort of dream come true was buying that Porsche slant nose, the 74 conversion, which I bought at the Pomona swap meet in 1992 when I was 25. And I paid 7,500 bucks for it. And that was dream come true. 15 years after I'd wrote the letter to Porsche, having gone through everything I just described, I acquired that car. And that was like, wow. You know, it wasn't a turbo, but it looked like a turbo. And it was like, that was all I needed. Wide body, you know, it, had a, it was on chrome rims. And it's just a different era. It was kind of like the Miami Vice era. You know, I still love slant nose, you know. My era, I suppose, of real passion is late 60s, early 70s. You know, it's the golden era for me of motorsports. You look back at that, it's everything from Vic Alford, Monte Carlo rally to Porsche's first win at Le Mans in 1970. You know, 60s, 70s for me was the pinnacle of my inspiration, maybe rolling into the 80s a little bit. So uh, that's kind of the story is how I'd gone from Sheffield to L.A. and a couple of cars along the way. Interestingly, yeah, interestingly, um, a couple of things you brought up there. You mentioned earlier about going to Sydney Motorsport Park for the uh, Rensport reunion when you were in Australia in 2016. I was thinking to myself, oh, because I live so far from Sydney over in Perth there, I, I spent a few of my formative years in Sydney. I actually went and saw Guns N' Roses at Sydney Motorsport Park. It was called Eastern Creek Raceway back then. It's like the biggest concert I'd ever been to, you know, skid. What year was that? Uh, 93. Okay. And there's like 250,000 people there. It was like the biggest concert ever, you know, and seeing the Gunners live, it was just an amazing experience. And it was like that classic rock show. They just put it on with interest. It was such a great experience for me, you know. And um, I was in my early 20s at the time. I'm a little bit younger than you, but not much. And um, it's, uh, yeah, so having my eyes opened and then and being at Eastern Creek or Sydney Motorsport Park, I'm, you know, walking on the on the track to get into the middle there where they actually had the concert. It was a, it was a, a really big eye opener for me. And getting on, you know, I've had, I haven't been back since, and I'd love to go back there to actually do, to drive the track because I haven't had the opportunity to. I feel like I should grab my white snake vinyl again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that was me like going to Donington. You know, Monsters of Rock, Donington eighty two eighty four. Let's not forget Donington's racetrack. Let's yeah. not forget Duncan hosted the British F1 yeah, at yeah. one period. Martin you know, one in centre. Yeah. So you talk about Guns N' Roses. First time I saw Guns N' Roses was at the LA Coliseum, probably four miles from where I'm sat now, opening up for the Rolling Stones oh, great. in like 1987, 88 on the Steel Wheels tour. You know, which I, I think back now it's like, Whatever it is, 30, 40, 35 years ago. And you know, they're still the going, Stones, both of them. Old back then, but, you know, they're still rocking and, uh, you know, the rest is history. But, yeah, I mean, the, these are memorable moments for sure. Yeah. Would that have been the Voodoo Lounge tour? 
of the stones? No, it was Steel Wheels. I should look it up. I'm pretty sure it was the Steel Wheels tour. It was 87, 88. Because I saw the stones at Wembley on the Voodoo Lounge tour. They were supported by the Black Crows. And what year was that? Oh, that's later. That, that would have been 90s, though. Yeah, yeah, this is what Google's for. You know, I'm 90% sure still <laughs> Google that yeah. later on if you're able to do it right now. Get on Google. Rolling Stones, North American, US tour, Steel Wheels, 87, 88. Yeah, if it's Guns N' Roses then, that would have been on the back of... Because they did the soundtrack for Terminator 2, didn't they? That was later too. This was before Guns N' It was like six months before Guns N' Roses became the biggest band in the world when Appetite for Destruction broke huge. This was like six months before that. Early days of MTV. You know, I don't know if Welcome to the Jungle was out or not, but it's that era. It's it's the the pinnacle era of Guns N' Roses about to explode and become the biggest band in the world. Yeah, because the the song that really threw... Because I remember Paradise City. When yeah, yeah, yeah. Came, yeah. And it just, you know, everybody was singing that song and everybody was talking yeah, about yeah. it. And you went, where, where are these guys come from? And then you look it up and you go, oh, yeah, they've been around for a while. And bands did their, they did their time, didn't they, on the circuit? It doesn't feel like they did that now because they're 18 and massively successful. Whereas bands did their time around the circuit. The Beatles did, the Stones did, you know, all of them did. Different Pop- era, you know, it was pre internet, no YouTube, no one's got a cell phone communicating across the world. It, you know, when you think back, it's amazing how we actually did stuff without a cell phone, but we seem to manage, right? You know, I got to America at 19 years old and, you know, I'd write letters back home or, you know, occasionally make a phone call. But uh, yeah, you just take it for granted now how bands become huge without ever performing, right? They're just recording like Billie Eilish in the bedroom or something. And then before you know it, they got a billion downloads and the biggest thing that I've never heard of. So actually, actually speaking of which, fame wise um so for you because obviously you were you were in the you know in the place where fame goes with just being where you are and people doing what they're doing and then you were doing your fashion you were doing the 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 Porsche thing you started doing that and then the Urban Outlaw movie came out the film and for you was that like an overnight thing that where suddenly you were from people knew who you were lots of people knew who you were already but suddenly Urban Outlaw this thing threw you out into the common consciousness of people. Did that Was that an overnight thing? Did that feel like an overnight thing? Yes and no. I mean, you know, I bought my first Porsche in 92. Urban Outlaw came out 2012. So that's a 20-year period. Pre-Urban Outlaw, I was active on these Porsche forums, Pelican Parts, Early S Registry, for probably... Five years, you know, I joined the Porsche Owners Club, took what I would call my aggressive street driving to the track, I guess in 02, 02, 03, 04. So for that period, 02 to 02, five years on to 07, I was doing a lot of track days yeah, in 277, probably 40, 50 track days a year. You know, local springs, but I'd go California Speedway, Vegas, Phoenix, Thunder Hill, Laguna Seca, a lot of track days. And that kind of morphed into 2007, 2008, all the time and energy and emotion I'd done doing track days and money that I'd spent kind of backed out of that a bit, started acquiring cars. That period, call it 2007, 2008, started building these sport purpose R inspired builds. I document these threads on the forums, Pelican Parts, Early S Registry. So 08, 09, 010, 
you know, it's a small world, that Porsche Forum world. And of course, everyone knows everything about everything and, you know, telling you you've got the wrong shade of CAD plating and, you know, that <laughs> screw and stuff like that. But, you know, so I was building my own sort of, I was just doing my own thing, building these cars, you know, that were our inspired short wheel base. You know, it was everything from a 67R to an ST and everything in between. I didn't really go beyond 73. But I was doing these elements. It wasn't so much, okay, there's a poster of a 73RS, right? Everyone's cloned that. It's like not really that difficult to build an RS out of a long wheel base, slap on some flares, put a ducktail on, bingo, you've got an RS look. So I was pretty active on the forums before Urban Outlaw came out, which is how Tamir Moscovici found me. Probably around 2010, 2011, I started getting some coverage in magazines such as Total 911, actually. You know, Total 911 weirdly came up with Urban Outlaw. You know, they did an article on me in 2011, urban environment, building outlaw cars. So I didn't even come up with the term urban outlaw. It was like the, the story of the article in Total 911, circa 2011. Then I got an email from this crazy Canadian guy, Timmy Moscovici. He was a film director. Uh, did a couple of motorsports things and but was pretty much bored of doing Bud Light commercials and wanted to make a short YouTube documentary for his reel, which he thought would get him in, into more car-related motorsports content. So I'd never met him. I'd been in the film location business, renting out my building for production companies, reality shows for 10 years before that. So I'd been around production, you know, it's big stuff, American Idol and America's Not... America's Next Top Model, but I was never the focus of the feature. So, and I turned down quite a few people, believe it or not, saying, why don't we make a film about it? It just didn't seem right. I didn't click with the people, the chemistry wasn't appealing to me, mm. you know, believe it or not at the time. And then for some reason, Tamir just sort of connected. And I thought, okay, how bad can this be? He ended up flying down on frequent flyer miles, what became Urban Outlaw was a pet project for him. It was shot on a small but very talented crew. The stars aligned. We shot it over four days, February 2012. And we didn't know what was going to happen. The original concept was a short YouTube documentary. And then June, we're almost in June. It's almost 10 years ago, and it's going to build up to a long, rambling 10-year anniversary of Urban Outlaw. But the catalyst was in June of 2012, we released like a three-minute trailer for the documentary. And it was weird because I wasn't really on social media. And one of my buddies said, you should probably get on social media. And I didn't even have an iPhone. I might have had a Motorola Razor flip phone. Because I was always like, who the fuck are these guys doing this on the phone all the time? It just seemed like nuts. <laughs> so I remember one of my buddies sent me. Facebook, Facebook, wasn't even Instagram, Facebook. I'd never posted. He set up an account, did one photo, and then the documentary trailer came out in June of 2012. And like the first day it came out, we didn't know were 500 people going to view it. We had no concept of what views meant really. But what I remember vividly was not really being on Facebook and not really knowing how to get on it, but my buddy was showing me. And remember, I hadn't posted. He'd put one photo of the garage. Then the trailer came out. And like within an hour, I had like 1,500 followers and all these requests. And then like within a few hours, we realized the trailer had got picked up by Top Gear. 
unlike it had gone from 5,000 to 10,000 to 50,000 in a day of views. And then I start getting all these friend requests on Facebook from like Spain. I go, what's going on in Spain? Well, of course, someone had reposted the, the actual trailer and it was this emotional roller coaster ride for the next kind of couple of weeks of the story just kept getting like Top Gear putting it out straight away was like, boom, you went from zero to 100 pretty quickly. You're on the radar. I think what was great about Tamir Moscovici's team was obviously I ramble on. You can sense that, right? He'd ask <laughs> no. me a question, what does Porsche mean? Do I ramble on for 20 minutes? They were able to dissect the little, I guess, gem of wisdom and edit it together. I've realized 10 years later, it's all about the edit to telling the story. An Urban Outlaw ended up becoming a 32-minute short documentary film, but there were a few pivotal things of the first week of Top Gear and Facebook, and you know, within a week I'm up 5,000 followers and I had to switch from a friend account to something else. Then I got on Instagram, it was like this whirlwind tornado. Then the other big thing was we got a phone call from Nike. And uh, Nike's head of action sports, Sandy Bodeck, had seen the Top Gear thing and reached out to me and was a Porsche guy, owned a GT2. And long story short, asked if we could screen a rough cut of the film to Nike, who was hosting some design summit seminar with like 25 of their creatives. They ended up renting my building in downtown for two days, holding this design summit planning event. I did an inspirational talk to him. He's like, wow, what is going on here? Like, you know, how, I'm, how are we on Nike's radar where we ended up screening a very rough mix of the film, which wasn't even finished? You know, they ended up flying Tamir down from Toronto, rented Soho House. So it was kind of gone from, shot it in February, nothing really happened till June, Top Gear story, Nike, two-week period, boom, explosion. When this anticipation for, well, when's the film coming out? You know, I'd be posting on Pelican and earliest registry a little bit about it. And then Tamir got it into the Raindance Film Festival, which is a rainy version of Sundance. All of us were going to England to screen the movie at Leicester Square, Piccadilly Circus, at the Gorm, or whatever the theater was there, on a Saturday night. It was like, wow, how did this happen? The film had gone from a little short documentary at this point to a 32-minute documentary that got into a film festival, and we flew to London in September. I had a little outlaw gathering, and a few people came from Europe, and it was just this awesome night. And then the film came out October 15th, 2012, almost 10 years ago. And then that's when things changed. You know, I started getting invited to events and even Porsche wrote me a letter saying, hey, we've seen the film. We heard about you as a 10-year-old boy and they invited me to come and visit them. I ended up going to tour the factory in the museum and I went there on, they give you a little sticker when you go. I don't know if you've been, but there's a date on it. And this was purely random, but I got there on 9-11-2013. 9-11, it was September 11th. <laughs> It's like, wasn't, you know, like some people plan to pick up their car on a certain day, like 9-11 or 9-30 or 9, well, whatever it is. Mine was purely random. But that sort of opened the floodgates to everything. And I think Porsche realized, even though I didn't fit the Porsche demographic and I wasn't a typical Porsche person, I had something that they couldn't manufacture and put in a cup. It was passion, right? True enthusiast. You know, being in love with the brand since I was 10, bought my first one at 25, now I'm 45, made a film about it. But the Urban Outlaw documentary is not really a film about Porsche. 
Porsche is the, the vehicle that takes you on my journey of everything I've rambled on about from the 10-year-old leaving school, whatever, right? Tamir was able to encapsulate that in a 32-minute documentary, which went on to win some awards. And you got to remember the timing of that film. There wasn't really a lot of content out there getting made in a cinematic way back then, the way that he did it. And so that was kind of the bar was pretty high. I didn't realize at the time, you know, how great a piece of film that was. But within two weeks of it coming out, Jay Leno's calling me. I'm on the Jay Leno. Wow. I literally, I'm a, I'd stuck into this show called SEMA, which is the biggest aftermarket show in America and perhaps top five car show in the world. And I'd heard about it because I wasn't in the industry. I'd never gone. I literally borrowed someone's badge I think my name was Bob Smith for the day. I flew to Vegas for the day. I get a phone call whilst I'm at SEMA on my little Motorola flip phone. Hey, it's Robert Angela. I'm calling from Jay Leno's show. Jay saw Urban Outlaw. Love to have you on his show. I go, how did this happen? But literally, that was like, I think, a Tuesday. And on the Saturday, I'm on the Jay Leno Garage show. And then that opened the door. And then two years later, I ended up doing a TED Talk 2014, which... Probably 98% of the people that had watched the TED Talk had no idea who I was, weren't into cars, but connected with the go with your gut feeling message of just trying to do what you love and don't know, kind of my story, right? But the TED Talk was another catalyst like Urban Outlaw. And the TED Talk's probably being viewed more than anything else I've ever done. It's almost, I don't know, almost 10 million views. And people still come up to me almost eight years later in weird places that, Hey, I just saw your TED Talk. So, you know, Urban Outlaw came, that led to the TED Talk. That led to sort of me getting invited around the world to go to events and drive cars. And then 2017, I had a book come out, autobiography of my life. I did a book tour. But those were sort of the stepping stones from Urban Outlaw to TED Talk to the book. And then what I'm doing, you know, this is the 10-year anniversary of Urban Outlaw. So I sort of thought, well, maybe we should do something. Everyone's always going, are you doing a follow-up? Well, we're not doing a follow-up, but um, I'm going to end up doing a collection of my cars in the Peterson Museum, 10 of my sort of outlaw builds on display at the Peterson Automotive Museum here in LA, starting October 15th and going through into 2023, which will then open up what appears to be a year-long Porsche exhibit at the Peterson Museum because next year is the 75th anniversary of Porsche. So next year is going to be a blockbuster year for all things Porsche. Rensport reunions happening. There'll be 75th anniversary limited edition whatevers. And uh, so I'm going to roll into that. But for me, I'm excited to actually have 10 of my cars in celebration of 10 years of Urban Outlaw at the Peterson Automotive Museum for a couple of months will sort of be, it'll be a milestone for the film. It'll be some credibility actually having my cars on display at a world-renowned museum. So I'm pretty excited about that. So there's a long rambling uh, yeah, sort that's of that's on really Urban Outlaw, the impact it had, how it came about, and sort of what it meant. One of those things that, I mean, it's, firstly, folks, anyone listening to this, it is, this is the start of the 10-year celebration. Right here. You heard it here first. Right here. <laughs> and the other thing is that throughout everything that you've done publicly, uh, you know, from Urban Outlaw, where, and even before, you, you've kind of gone with this philosophy of don't overthink it, go with the feeling, go with the flow. And it served you so well. 
you know, to, to go with a feeling because, you know, even things like when I buy a car, I buy the owner, when I go and do something, if it feels right, just do it. You know, some, if you overthink it, you talk yourself out of doing even the most sort of no-brainer thing that you're about to do. You can overthink it to the point that you just, you know, you, you become inactive. And whereas you've gone, I'm not going to overthink it. I'm just going to go, this feels right. I'm going to go with it. And, and do you feel that that is the feeling that you're going to carry through? Or, or does there have, is there now baggage where you think about more? No, no. I mean, I, I think it works for a certain type of human entrepreneurial spirit. A lot of people that I've met that have become successful really kept it simple. They just did what they love and they didn't overthink it. I think a lot of people are afraid of failure. I tell this story a lot where you got an idea, you talk to your buddy because you're not quite sure, you don't have full inner confidence and your buddy, family member or whoever it may be may go, I don't know if that's such a good idea. It'll never work. So people don't cross the start line a lot of times. Everyone might have an idea, but... The fear of failure is what prevents people from actually starting something, whatever it may be, business, uh, buying something, whatever it may be, right? You know, even if it's just, I don't know what I want to eat on the menu, you know, and then they ask a waiter, well, what's your favorite dish on the menu? And then they get the waiter's favorite dish that they don't like. It's just, just don't overthink it. I never asked other people's opinions on what should I do? Like when we bought this building, which was the best thing we ever did, didn't realize it at the time, people were like, why are you buying a building? That's kind of a stupid idea. Why do you want that liability? Well, we were just sick of paying other people's mortgages and it kind of made sense. We then got into the film location business, which was pretty lucrative, which enabled me to have more cars than I ever thought I would own. And then the neighborhood became one of the trendiest neighborhoods in LA. I got Spotify 200 yards away and WeWork and Warner Brothers and Soho House, but it wasn't like that. I've lived in this neighborhood since 1994, 28 years. You know, it's a little bit like shortage wasn't always cool, right? Mm -hmm. Might've been an edgy place. Now shortage might be the epicenter or it might not be, who knows? But So the moral to the story is I never questioned, I never asked other people's opinions on what should I do. It just either felt right or it didn't. And that was my whole life coming to America, trying never to go back to Sheffield, which didn't happen. I stayed, right? Starting this clothing company, designing things that I personally liked. The common thread that connects my life, really, whether it's the clothing business that I built, the property that I bought and developed where I really made money, the car thing is just a hobby. I don't really sell them very often, so it's not a business. But the common thread that connects all three of those things that I've had some personal success and gratification in is just doing things that I love to do that are creative, that inspire me to get out of bed. You know, 8 a.m. in the morning is not early for me. You know, 5 a.m. is early, 8 a.m. You want to get shit done, you get up early. But if you're so passionate and motivated by it, you're already automatically, I don't have an alarm. I'm already waking up eager to go. I'm still that way. You know, we're currently restoring an old house that we bought in the Hollywood Hills that people thought we were nutty for buying that's a sort of diamond in the rough. But you got to find things that occupy your time that are creative and inspire because that's how you keep moving forward, whatever it may be. You know, cars are just a slight, uh, a big part of my life, but they're not the be all and end all of who I am. You know, people identify me as, oh, you're that Porsche guy, right? Well, I, yeah, I own a lot of Porsches, but I don't say I'm that Porsche guy. You know, I'm a dude with a beard that owns cars and a lot of them are Porsches. Yeah, but 
I have other interests beyond that. So, you know, yeah, to me, it's just do what you love and don't overthink it. Yeah, because from your from how you're known, um, if someone doesn't have that passion for Porsche or for all things automotive, then they they would just see you. Oh yeah, you're you're that guy with with cars. Whereas there's obviously there's many layers, and there's I mean I'm going to ask you about your E-Type in a minute and your Ferrari because that's a bit of a departure for you, um, and the and, and Rolls Royce. But the uh, I've got to ask you about chips first. Sorry, Mark. Oh, fish and um, chips. Yeah, but not just that, not just that. You posted something on Instagram, and obviously, you know, I follow you on Instagram. I appreciate you're, you're, you're a fellow Brit, and you posted something, and it was a picture of chips, and they had the skin on. Yeah. And, and, I, and I thought, no, Magnus, no. In Sheffield, that would never happen. In the UK, that would never happen. That's not chip shop chips. Yeah, I'm not as picky about skin on, skin off as I am over battered fish. Oh, like the yeah, chips okay. are the accessory oh. to the fish. You know, we can we can deep dive into chips and chip buddies and chips and curry sauce and chips and mushy peas. But, you know, it's the chips. We should have started talking about this earlier, Magnus. We should have started. You've opened the door now. When you say curry sauce, you say chip butty. Oh, my God. That's it. Yeah, I mean, it all starts with, obviously, Brits abroad. You know, I'm not a foodie, you know. My pet peeve are three-hour dinners at fancy restaurants where you leave having, for me, it's painful, you've wasted a lot of time, you're still hungry, and you might have spent more money than you really want to spend. You know, just give me a good plate of fish and chips, but that is not that easy to find. You know, you can tell when it rolls out and the fish looks like a square brick and it's got this greasy armor on it that you know, you just know it's... Over, it's like over battered, over greasy, and you know inside it's going to be overcut and rubbery. So you know my, my big thing is fish and chips should be like the every man's dinner, right? You go to some restaurants and it's like, how is fish and chips twenty eight dollars? You know, <laughs> yes. you throw a chip in, it would be like you know two pounds, a couple of quid or whatever. I don't know what it is at the chippy today, but finding fish and chips anywhere in America is not really easy. Every Irish pub, of which there's plenty, all have fish and chips on the menu. But nine times out of ten, cooked. You know, well, you'll have a waitress tell you, I go, this is overcooked and greasy. And the waitress will go, cod's greasy. Cod is not a greasy fish. You just fucking put way too much batter on it and overcooked it, right? So it's rubbery. It should be light and crispy and flaky. But fish and chips, it's like the every man's meal that came in newspaper, yeah. right? It's not fine dining. So, you know, you go to a restaurant, you want you want to be adventurous, you get fish and chips, and it's like 28 bucks, and it's not good. It's like, you know, a couple of little pieces of fish and five fries. You go, how is this fucking fish and chips, right? I hate I'm that. The yeah. greatest chips I've ever been to is in Stonehaven, Scotland, just north of Aberdeen, where, where my sister happens to live. And they do it right. It's still not in old newspaper because I guess, you know, you can't environmentally serve it in newspaper and have the ink come off on the chips anymore, right? But to me, yeah, it can come in a box and I'm the guy that's getting the side of curry sauce and the mushy peas and, you know, even in the fancy restaurant occasionally or the British pub, I'm asking for a bread roll. They don't know what a bread roll is. I go, give me a hamburger roll. What do you want that for? Don't worry about it. Just give it me. You know, I'm putting the 
butter on, I'm putting the chips on it, the peas on it, a little bit of fish. I'm making the chip buddy sandwich. That's me. I'm still making that. So, you know, fish and chips are just one of those things that you used to take for granted if you could get it everywhere. You can't get it everywhere in America. And when you find it nine times out of 10, it's really not well done. You know, and I've talked to like chefs. I go, why is it so hard for people to do fish and chips? It shouldn't really be that hard. So, but back to chips with skin on it, you know, that's that's not the norm, but I'm not anti-skin on chips. It's more about over-battered fish. It's witchcraft, Magnus. It's witchcraft. Which, all right, witchcraft it is. <laughs> but chips and curry sauce and mushy peas. I'm so glad you're passionate about this topic because I've been talking about it for ages. About <laughs> the podcast, Magnus. You've got to be. I mean, in- what does fish and chips cost at the chippy? What's the average fish and chips in the chippy in England? Well, my local chippy, they are massive. So I'm a family of four. I go and get two fish and chips, and there's tons left over. The fish is is huge, and it's not even the haddock. It's cold. How much? But but it's like nine pounds for four for four people. No five pounds. No each 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 person fish and chips. Yeah. So it's gone up a bit. I mean. I remember being in London, shortage, of course, got to be trendy, right? Got a shortage. Brick Lane, curry, another favor of mine. But there's a fancy, very, not fancy, it's a fish and chip shop that's become very trendy there. You know, it's on the corner. It's super touristy. It's kind of set up like a 50s British fish and chip, chippy, right? But I seem to recall there were like 14 pounds there for fish and chips. Maybe that's, you know, trendy shortage London expensive for essentially takeout fish and chips it is i'm not sure my age now but i remember when it was one pound in the 80s for fish and chips and then that was before there was tax on potatoes yeah oh tax on potatoes not aware of that yeah and then suddenly they went up to like two pounds and then it goes on and on and on but i I appreciate that not everyone listening will be passionate as passionate about fish and chips as magnus and i are so i'm I'm passionate about about a good curry and then the basics beans on cheese on toast you know that's about it i actually you know early days of covid i had my little outlaw cooking show it was kind of a like weirdly covid was great for me because i didn't travel no one stopped by I ended up doing a bunch of creative things that I'd always said, you know, I don't have time to do. I ended up doing three show, three seasons of this show for Haggerty, got behind the sewing machine and trying to occupy your time, right? And I ended up doing outlaw cooking. It was a Sunday cooking show where I'd do like British staples, you know, literally beans on toast. I did a veggie curry. You know, I did a few other things. You know, one of them stupidly was just how to make the perfect cup of tea, right? You know, there's more to it than sticking the tea bag in the cup putting the boiling water on. It was like, you know, you know, heating the pot, you know, does the milk go in first or does the milk go in after? There's a whole debate on when you put the milk in the cup. So you know, it was just a way of occupying time. But uh, I'm passionate about well-cooked basic food. Like I say, my pet peeve are these three-hour lunches at fancy restaurants, at car shows with car guys. It's just like painful for me. Yeah. But the, but, but the, t- the rule, Magnus, cup of tea, the milk never touches the tea bag. Tea bag. All right. All right. Mine was brewed in the pot going through the strainer with leaves. You know, I was doing oh, old school. Yeah, yeah. It's not the full on experience. This is well, all right. So, a tea bag question. I mean, PG tips, Thai food, Yorkshire gold. What's your pick? Yorkshire gold. Oh, there you go. There you go. Every time. Yorkshire gold seems to have come on as a nation's favorite, it seems. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've been using the Clipper one recently because did you hear the whole thing about plastics and tea bags? No. And then Clipper came out and went, oh, it's an organic one. And you know, suddenly you go, actually, me having a cup of tea, I'm destroying the planet. How can this be? So, <laughs> so you're doing it with a strainer. You're the one who's being more eco than I am. It's mad. Yeah, I mean, growing up as a kid, I don't even remember Yorkshire tea, even though, you know, obviously I'm from Yorkshire. It was Thai food, PG tips, Tentleys. Uh, you know, Yorkshire tea is like yep. kale. Where did that come from? You know, it's kind of came out of nowhere. And it's like, kale's like, what is kale? All of a sudden, it's like a super trendy food. I mean, where the fuck does kale come from? I love, I, love that you, I love that you're calling kale and Yorkshire tea. They're the two things that came out of nowhere. I love that you say that because for me, you're exactly right. When I was growing up, it was you were you were one of three, Tetley, PG, or Thai food. They were the that big ones. There's nothing else. Sprouts. Like my mom used to cook these, you know, Sunday roast occasionally, but I hated Brussels sprouts because she'd always sort of overboil them and they'd be soggy with no flavor. Now it's like you got these like grilled Brussels sprouts with some balsamic vinegar and the crunchy. I go, hey, wow. They never had Brussels sprouts like this as a kid. Yeah, right? They were always soggy at home. Yeah, exactly. That's it. You know what? That next urban cooking show has just written itself. Soggy Brussels sprouts are a thing of the past. You don't have like, you know, char grilled, you know, balsamic vinegar with some little pine nuts on the side and a drizzle of uh, whatever your latest flavor is. And you've got to eat them over. It's definitely a show. You know, I, I joke about how I should do the bearded man's guide to basic fine dining, right? Everyone's, you know, not everyone, but there's a lot of there's a lot of cooking shows, right? People do like cooking shows, uh, but the majority of them don't, or at least the ones I'm familiar with, don't necessarily seem to focus on really basic food. And, you know, being sort of the anti-gourmet dining thing, it's almost like I need like an Anthony Bourdain's no reservation bearded man's guide to yeah. fine basic dining where we go on a journey discovering people, places, and food, and I drive one of these P cards. It's, it's a show that I want to do, actually. Oh, my God. That's it. That's going to happen. And, there you go. And, and everybody's probably thinking uh, this is supposed to be about cars. Um, so I'm going to ask you about the E-Type because the E-Type is, is, a, is a big thing in my history because when I was a kid in the early mid to late 80s, my dad worked at Jaguar Cars in Birmingham. Oh, wow. And, and, I, and, it, and I remember... Um, as I used to play football at the local with my school, and I used to walk on a Saturday past the factory. And if he was walking, working, I'd walk in and get a lift off him. And I remember walking in there, and they'd just done the launch of the XJ220. So in a big display box was the XJ220 with an E-Type next to it. And it was the first time I'd ever seen one. It was the you know the Roadster, and it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And thought one day I'm going to own that. And obviously the more money you earn, the more expensive it's getting <laughs> exponentially. And right. you've got one. Yours is a Series 3? I actually have two, believe it or not. Ooh. But they're not the first E-Type that I own. What I currently own are the Ugly Duckling 2 Plus 2 Automatics. Ooh. These are the cars that no one wants, but they're the affordable E-Types. And there's a goal behind what I have. But my E-Type story began... I owned a Series 1 in the 90s. I had a 67 Series 1. That's the last year of the glass-covered headlights, 4.2 synchro MOS box. You know, they break down into three Series, 1, 2, and 3, as you know. Yep. Series yep. 1 came out in 61. Geneva 
150 mile an hour supercar, flat floor, outside bonnet latch, 3.8 motor, non-synchro four-speed box. You know, that's the purest purist. And second gen purist is what I had, glass covered headlights, gen two of series one. What I currently own is, I owned that car in the 90s when they were affordable. I kept it all the way through 2011, which was the 50th anniversary of the E-Type. Yes. And I sold it in 2011, but I'd bought it in the 90s. You know, it was a great story of, you know, I back then it's pre-internet. So I have all these car stories about, I'd get the auto trader, the sports car trader, it would come out on a Thursday, but you could get it Wednesday night at midnight. Coming back from a club, I'd always pick it up. One of the craziest stories I ever bought, I'll, I'm going to switch gears slightly and talk about a Lotus Europa, and then I'm going to circle back around to the E-Type. I bought a Lotus Europa 73 twin cam. It'd been for sale, Walnut Creek, California. It was advertised for like 7,800 bucks. Been a couple of weeks on the sports car trader. I called the guy up. This is when, you know, shit didn't sell in like 10 minutes. He goes, well, you know, I'll drive it down to California, Southern California. He was Northern California, San Francisco. He goes, I want to visit my brother next weekend. I'll drive it down from Walnut Creek to Orange County. I said, well, if it makes it, I'll buy it. That was how I bought <laughs> my Lotus Europa, because who would expect a 73 Flincam Lotus Europa to Make actually drive 400 miles without yeah, breaking yeah. down? And the E-Type story was kind of similar. E-Type Series 1 restored car in Sacramento. You know, I ended up flying, I bought a round trip ticket Southwest, flew up to Sacramento, 20 grand in a backpack. Guy meets me at the airport, picks me up in the E-Type, end up buying the car in Sacramento, drive it back the same day. Everything's going great. And remember the car's restored. I get within a quarter of a mile of my loft downtown, less than a mile from where I'm sitting right now, clutch went out. And it was like, welcome to the world of E-Type Jag ownership. <laughs> Fix the clutch. Next thing, car starts overheating. Then we go, you know, bigger radiator, dual fan, solve the overheating problem. But the Series 1 E-Type, you know, I'd park it in the warehouse. We wouldn't drive it for six months. we go, why don't we drive that car? It's so beautiful to look at. You know, then we drive it, something else would break. But what I've learned with them, and this is going to tie into the Rolls-Royce as well, British cars have to be driven. You let them sit, they're not going to start. Hoses are going to crack, they're going to overheat. Thermostats are going to stick. They're not going to open. So that is the story with almost all cars are better to be driven. To answer your question on the E-Type, I told you the story about the Series 1. Recently, I'm like, I kind of want another E-Type. But I started looking up prices for, you know, coupes, manual. I don't want a roadster. And they just became really expensive. There were no longer 20 grand cars. It was kind of like buying Porsches for five grand that are now worth 10 times that. E-Types were kind of, a, you know, they hadn't gone up nearly as high as early 911s did, but they're still now like, you know, 100 grand to get a good coupe. And I didn't want to spend that much money. So I ended up buying this white series two from a buddy who, it was his dad's car and it was an automatic. And my goal always was to convert it to a manual five-speed, like a modern gate rag that would come out oh. of a BMW. But the white one was almost too nice. Then I ended up finding the series three, the blue one down in Florida which has got this, like an old beat up leather couch that's all cracked up, yeah. been repainted. The original color was turquoise. It got painted darker blue and it was an old, older paint job, like a lacquer paint, which had been out in the sun and baked and all cracked up to where it literally looks like a hundred year old leather couch on the exterior. Blue, blue interior, also two plus two automatic, 
But the goal with that car is that's the keeper. Convert it to a manual five-speed, redo all the underpinnings and suspension, but leave this perfectly messed up patina. But you've got to remember, these are the two plus two, so they're nine inches longer. They're pretty long. And that body style is awkward with the roof line. It's not as sleek. But in the Series 3, the V12, it's slightly flared, and the wheel arches are cut slightly higher. And that Series 3 slightly flared body style actually suits the 2 plus 2 awkward roof line a whole lot better. But the whole point was it was just variety, wanting to experience things that weren't 911s or weren't Porsches. Because even when it comes to Porsche, for me, it's not purely 911. It's, you know, front engine, mid engine, rear engine, air and water cool. I got the 924s and 928s and 914s. So now it's all about variety, which, you know, leads into the other British car story, the Rolls Royce. A couple of years ago, I bought uh, Hannah, my girlfriend, I bought her a 88 560 SL Mercedes for a birthday. Wow. Sort of an affordable classic that turned out not to be quite as great as we hoped it was. And long story short, we ended up trading an 88 SL through this independent Mercedes sort of sports car dealer. They had a Rolls Royce in the corner, a 75 Shadow. And I'd always wanted a Rolls Royce. I think a lot of English people want Rolls Royces. And, you know, they fall into a lot of categories, whether you like the you know, the, the Sweeney mobster from the 60s and 70s or second-hand scrap dealer, second-hand car dealer, all the way up to the hobnob Savile Row thing. Like, there's nothing really much more British other than fish and chips and a Rolls-Royce, right? But, of course, you know, the Rolls-Royce is like, you start looking around and they fall into a lot of categories. They're like either really cheap pieces of shit with Chevy 350 motors in them and, of course, Everyone tells you there's nothing more expensive than a cheap Rolls Royce. But we ended up trading this 560 SL, two grand, 75 Rolls Royce Shadow. And we're in the car now in the teens, in the teens, you know. We're not spending much money on it. And ironically, the car broke down on the test drive. It ran out of gas, didn't really break down. But even that didn't stop us doing the deal. So we get this 75 Shadow, long wheelbase. It's olive green, brown in tears. It's got all the character in the world. We spend a little bit of money on it, but not much, a couple of grand. And the key to them is you just got to keep driving them. And what I love about this, the vintage Rolls Royce is, first of all, you're going down the road. This is 60 to 70 in a Rolls going straight. This is how it is. Delicate steering wheel. And the car forces you to slow down. It forces me to slow down. You know, you can squeal tires at 20 miles an hour going around corners. So it's a bit like the 912 in the sense of it seems faster than it is. But... Willow the dog loves it. You can get four people in it. Every journey in the vintage Rolls Royce is a sort of trip down memory lane. It's a memorable moment. You can park it anywhere. No one looks at you like you're a douchebag in a vintage Rolls Royce like they would in a new Rolls. Everyone wants to start strike up a conversation. If I end up going to one of those three-hour fancy lunches with Hannah and you go somewhere fancy... They'll park the car out front for you because, you know, I generally hate people valley parking cars. But the Rolls, it's okay. They'll leave it out front. So you always sort of feel special in this car that's worth nothing, but it makes you feel like a million bucks. And it's back to covering all the sensors. I have driven new Rolls Royces, and I don't really care for them. But vintage ones, now we own two, his and hers. I just got mine. I ended up getting this two-door coupe. 
which is really rare. It's not a Corniche. Corniche came out in 71. The two-door Shadow Coupe, Mullinough Park Ward, uh, bespoke, custom coach built. Rolls sent the bodies out because they were doing four-door shadows. Two-door Coupe came out in 66, ran through 71. They only made 500 for the entire world. And then 71, they called them a Corniche. Everyone thinks it's a Corniche, but it's pre-Corniche. So I ended up finding this car in LA, two-door coupe. It's all black. It was originally, we found out, burgundy. And it's just like a slightly cooler version of the four-door shadow because it's a two-door coupe that you don't see. Then he got, oh, McQueen drove one in the Thomas Crown Affair. This is actually pretty cool. You know, it's not the typical, you know, you think of Rolls-Royce Corniche, at least in California. They're all convertibles. The majority of them are white, the very Beverly Hills. This is not that car. This is like the late 60s, you know, Thomas Crown Affair, Steve McQueen. It's rock and roll cool. It's, you know, the type of car Keith Richards would drive. You know, it's like, it's like the, it's the cool version of the four-door shadow. But yet again, it's not an expensive car. You know, nine, I paid for the two-door coupe. So my point is, I'm at the point in life now where it's all about variety, still making memorable moments. It's not necessarily about how quick can you go from A to B because none of these Rolls Royces are quick cars. You know, you don't really want to go more than 80 in them because they don't stop great. They're super floaty. They roll around. But that's part of the occasion. I find that we're actually driving the Rolls more than we're, we're driving anything else. The E-types, unfortunately, they're just not reliable enough. I haven't gone through them or found the right guy to go through them who's going to make them reliable, but I do want to get them to that point. Ironically, the guy that's working on the rolls is this old-timer guy, Charlie Agapu, who used to work for Carol Shelby. I just did this series with Haggerty called The Big Thing, and Charlie Agapu was Shelby's crew chief in the glory days of the GT40. English guy moves out to L.A., worked for Ken Miles, ends up being Shelby's crew chief throughout the whole Le Mans program of the GT40. Fast forward over the past 40, 50 years, he's the go-to Rolls-Royce guy in LA. So he's the guy that are taking care of these Rolls that we've got that spend a little bit of money, a couple of grand, drive them all the time. They become reliable cars. But you park them, let them sit, they're not reliable cars. So that that's second one broken down yet? What's that? Has that second one broken down yet? Well, yeah, of course. You know, <laughs> the story with that car, you know, we bought it or I bought it three weeks ago. It came out of a, it came out of a, it, the car was donated to a charity in Orange County. The charity in Orange County, like in the States, a lot of people tax write-off donate cars and not driving. So the two-door coupe had sat basically for the past two years. Went down, took a test drive. Of course, you drive around the block, it's fine. I'm picking it up in Irvine. It's 45 miles to downtown LA. I didn't really think I should tow it to Charlie's. I go, well, it's going to make it. It made it 30 miles, and all of a sudden, I'm on the five freeway north. I feel a loss of power, and then a split second later, I see all the coolant over the windshield, steam coming out. I just managed to get off the five freeway north in this part of town called Montebello Commerce, which is heavy industry. You know, I'm trying to sneak down the inside lane of the off-ramp because I know it's going to die. There's steam coming out. You know, the whole 30 miles before you, it's like any first drive in any car, you, you're sort of watching the gauges the whole time. You know, and you're very, in, like, very cautious. 
But five miles in, you start going a little bit faster. I'm cautious. I know the brakes are not great, so I've got a big gap in between, but I'm on this pretty heavy traffic freeway, and then it overheats, and I know it's going to die. And I'm trying to get off the off-ramp, and I'm surrounded by big rigs, like 53-foot tractor trailers, <laughs> industrial area. I'm trying to sneak but a big rig's turning right. I know he's going to fucking knife jack me, so I back off. So, and then the car literally dies in the middle of the road, aren't just sort of off the off-ramp, but not quite off, but it's dead. And I can't push it. Hannah's following behind in the turbo because she driven me down. I'm sort of blocking a three-lane road. Before you know it, someone actually pushes me off to the side. We open up the hood. It had blown. You know, a few things had gone wrong. The overflow on the tank had cracked. The thermostat was stuck, even though the temp gauge never showed running hot and it didn't smell running hot. It just blew a hose from the radiator of the wow. fuel, uh, to the water pump. That was it, game over. But here's the funny part of the story. Well, okay, you know, no big deal. I've broken down in every single car. I've got AAA cell phone, blah, blah, blah. I'm less than 10 miles from downtown. LA. Within five minutes of it being parked on this busy three-lane road right by the freeway, it's noisy. I see a highway patrol guy. I go, this guy's going to stop because, you know, we look like this in an odd area with a Rolls Royce. Yeah. Guy comes over, fanboys me. You're Magnus Walker, Highway Patrol, wants to get a photo with me in front of the Rolls Royce. It's just broken down. I swear to God that happened. Two minutes later, someone else comes up, wants a photo. So I said to Hannah, we got to leave the car here, but we got to go on the other side of the road. The, the block is too hot. We call AAA. We end up waiting two fucking hours for AAA to come to pick this car up, to tow it straight to Charlie's, who uh, basically rebuilt the brake system. It's got a very complicated brake system that's hydraulic that's basically the same system that's on the Citroen, overcomplicated. Is that mineral, mineral oil or something, isn't it? Yeah, it drives off a cam off the engine. And it's, yeah, there's two parts to it. And it's, it's just overcomplicated. There's a lot of overcomplicated things on that car. The overheating problem was pretty simple, new thermostat, new hose. But yeah, the car broke down on the drive home. And then I picked it up Friday. Hannah was just returning from, she'd been out in Monaco on a press trip with Mercedes. I picked it up at Charlie's in Hollywood, by 4.30 Friday afternoon, I'm driving to LAX and then driving from LAX to downtown. 4.30 to 6 o'clock, the busiest rush hour. I say to Charlie, is this going to be okay? He goes, I think it is. I go, because this will be the trial by fire. I'm just going to sit in traffic for two hours, going to the airport and going back downtown. So if it's going to overheat or break down, this is where it's going to happen. On a Friday afternoon, rush hour between 5 and 6 o'clock. Didn't miss a beat. And that was literally a couple of days ago. And then we just drove it all weekend, put up almost 200 miles on it with no issues. So now I'm wake, making the list of things that I want to do. I can't quite get, it's got electric seats, but they're, they're not moving. It's a little too high. The steering wheel's off center. So I'm making a list of things that the Rolls needs, but we're in love with that car. So there's me rambling about British cars. How, and did, you, how did you end up at a Dino? Well, Back in the day, I owned a 308 GTB, back to my Uncle David owning one. That was also oh, one Magnum. of the cars. I had a 79, last year of the carbureted. And I always wanted a 512 Boxer. And that, to me, was like a 308 GTB on steroids. And one of my top five cars, and I've driven a couple of them, Ferrari F40. 
but I don't have Ferrari F40 money. <laughs> and I'm all about entry level everything. So to me, a couple of Ferraris I'd want, a 355, a 360, possibly one of those two. But I'd always liked the quirky 308 GT4 Dino, the wedgie Batoni. Yeah. You know, it's the only non-Pinaferina Ferrari. This used to be a car you could buy for next to nothing. It's a car that no one wanted. You know, it falls into that category of 70s wedgie things like, you know, I had a short-lived love affair with a Lotus Esprit that turned out to be a lemon, which I'd bought on Bring a Trailer. And I just started, you know, I did this show for Hanging the Next Big Thing, and one of the feature cars, the next big thing was all about the underdog up-and-coming up cars. Like we did a Lamborghini episode with an Asparta, because when you think of Lamborghini, yeah. you don't think of a Asparta, right? You know, you got to go down 20 Lamborghinis before you get to a Sparta. Yeah. So I did an episode where I was comparing sort of an Asparta with a 308 GT4 Dino, even though the two are completely different. They, they fit the same category of entry-level, underdog, unloved, not traditional thoughts of a Ferrari. And I just really kind of wanted one. And I ended up finding this one local within 10 miles of where I'm at. It's an early one, Series 175, not red, non-sunroof. And it's not fast. It's lazy. It's compared to a 911, not nimble. It's tractor-like. It's not as fast as it seems. It doesn't turn in great. It doesn't really stop great. It doesn't really do anything great. But... It sounds great. It's got the clickety-click, snickety-snick. Visibility's good. You don't see them. You know, it's the thinking man's Ferrari, right? The 308 GT4 Dino. But it's also the affordable Ferrari. You know, so I've been driving it. And, you know, the goal now is to actually make it perform better. I want to get it off the 14-inch wheels. I want to get it on some 15-inch compact Nolas. It's under-wheeled and under-tired. It's running a... Four, stock 14-inch rim that's six and a half wide, 14 tall, uh, with a tall profile tire. But it's got all the room in the world where I'm pretty sure I can get a seven and eight on it with a modern sort of grippy tire like a Pirelli Trofeo R that still looks somewhat period correct. But the challenge is, Carola doesn't make a Ferrari bolt pattern wheel. So it's got to be a custom spec wheel, which they'll do, or group four who's sort of doing the replica will do. But I got to figure out the exact offset, which is not that easy to figure out, you know, how to get the correct offset to run a seven and eight all round. Then I'll run out like a 225 Pirelli Trofeo wow. all round. And I think that'll change the characteristic of that car. Like right now, it needs a few things. And I just describe it as lazy, but I'm still engaged in it. You know, it's, it's a relatively easy car to drive, it's not intimidating. You know, weirdly, an F40 is also not an intimidating car to drive, but the F40 is like, you know, a $2 million car. <laughs> and, you know, the Ferrari GT4 Dino's, you know, not a $2 million car. So that's why the Ferrari, you know, it's, it, I, I kind of have a soft spot for Ferraris, but I've always sort of owned like the entry-level ones, only because, you know, that's where I'm at, you know. I'd kind of want to test a Rosa, even though I hear they're not great. It wouldn't stop me from having one. But yet, yet again, they're not affordable, really. Or, or they're not entry-level. Yeah, because in the UK, um, if you drive around in, say, you know, when I'm driving my 912 or even my 911, my 996, 
they're tiny compared to a lot of the SUVs and things like that that you're in traffic with. But if you're in that Ferrari or if you're in a, a 70s, 60s, 9-11, you must feel like the other drivers can't even see me. Surely. Yeah, I mean, that was the ultimate problem with the 73 Lotus Europa. You know, it's 42 inches high. So you were under the mirror of every SUV. So nobody saw you. And that car didn't really have enough power to get out of its way. It was a momentum car. So it was kind of a bit, you couldn't slice some dice. You were always worried about literally someone running over you in it. Uh, the front was just a little bit bigger, but it's interesting you talk about size and scale, right? Because, you know, you talk about your, your 996 and your 912 and how small they seem. I'm surrounded by cars that seem small. Yeah, I mean, they don't seem small when you're in this garage, but when you got a 992 parked outside, you go, wow. <laughs> 993, even one of my phases, uh, 996 GT3 that I've got right there, seems small compared to a modern 992. And it's like, it's also my pet peeve with all these modern super hypercar manufacturers. The cars have got all the power in the world that we've talked about you can't use. The cars are wider than they've ever been when the roads are getting narrower than they've ever been. The road surface in LA is not great anywhere. So it's almost like, you know, you're not really going too much faster in a in a 750-horsepower car than you are in your 200-horsepower car on your favorite road. Granted, yes, you are faster, but you're not like three times faster three times the horsepower, right? Yeah. You know, the road always determines the ultimate speed, you know, and if you can only do, you know, X, Y, Z on that road, it doesn't really matter if you've got 200 horsepower or 1,200. You might get there a little quicker with your 1200 horsepower, but that max speed is not going to be, you know, 50% quicker than it is in the other car. Yeah. So Absolutely. to me, it's, not, it's, it's a lot of modern cars now just have power that's not usable. It's a performance package that's not obtainable unless you're on a racetrack. You know, it's a little yeah. bit like, you know, Porsche always talking about Nürburgring lap times, right? Well, I'm not even really go to the Nürburgring. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I, um, I recently drove a, a, a brand new McCann GTS and because Mark challenged me to go and drive one because I'm always down on SUVs. I just think, especially the ones they make really, really powerful. You know, why? Because it's not, it doesn't replace a sports car and they make out that they do. And I drove one and I, I took it back to the dealership and I said, well, it just feels like any other car. You know, it was PDK. And the lady at the dealership turned to me and went, but that's what a 992 feels like. It drives like any other car. And you just think, well, why would I want that? I want the car to make me work. I want to know I've been beaten up when I get out of the car. And, yeah. you know, it's that kind of thing, that engagement that you go, that's the thing that I know I've been in something that's different. Whereas with the modern ones, it's not accessible power. You know, I went to Millbrook uh, on Friday and I drove a Taycan and I did launch control. And in the space of one mile, I went from zero to 158 to 40. And you go, when am I going to do that on the road? Never. Is the novelty yeah. of that going to wear out? It is. I don't even get the point of launch control in that environment you just said, yeah. like the Taycan, right? I mean, how many people are using launch control in a Taycan in England on a public road? No, I mean, it's dangerous. What's, what's the point? I mean, I drove the new GT, uh, GT3, and to me, it's too much of a race car for the street. You know, it's one of my pet peeves. It's got the same engine in it, is that 600-mile 2019 speedster that you saw, right? They haven't developed that platform of the uh, 
internal combustion, naturally aspirated motor anymore. It's like they're maxed out on it, right? They're, they're no longer developing that power plant because it's the same power plant as in the 2018, 2019 Speedster, which now is how old is that technology, right? So they're making that car faster on a racetrack with all the RSR, front suspension, blah, blah, blah. But that actually makes it slower on a regular fucked up road because it's super guard, you know, it's moving around and it, it's like this. Then you got the big wing in the back that's right at your eye level when you're trying to look in the rear view mirror to make a maneuver. And so it's almost like, well, quick around the ring, yeah, we get it, but in real world situation, has no more power than the old 991. So of technology, you haven't advanced the drivetrain in that car, which to me is a little bit like he's saying a message, right? I'm sure they could develop it, but yeah, why are we going to spend money when we're phasing out internal combustion engines? You know, it's kind of the writing on the wall is there. Like, you made it quicker, but in real-world situation, I don't really think you did. And it didn't become a better driving experience unless you're on the smoothest road surface. So to me, it's kind of like, where where are we going, right? You know, is uh, are these things going to be a thing of the past in five, ten years Part of me goes, well, as long as we can still get oil and gasoline, we're still going to be driving internal combustion cars. They're not going to disappear overnight. You know, we've all driven electric cars and yes, they're fast, but yeah, it always comes back to range, right? And where you're going to charge and how long is it going to take to charge? And, you know, when you get to that charging station, does it work? And do you need to download a certain app? And is it a high speed one? And, is it where you want to be on your off-road trip to Moab where they're not really along the way? You know, it's kind of a weird thing. You know, I was down at Amila Island recently talking to a Porsche exec and asked him what car he drove down and asked him if he drove the Taycan. And he said he didn't drive the Taycan because there weren't enough charging stations between Atlanta <laughs> and Amila Island on the way. I go, well, how's this Charge America thing working then if there's not, you know, electric charging stations in every state on every corner, right? So still a long way for that technology to go. I guess in there we'll get there. But, you know, it's back to all these electric cars from every manufacturer. They're all big brutes, right? They're huge. Why do they need – why is no one making a cool, small electric car? I don't I see it here. Maybe in Europe it's different, but here – I don't see it. Everything's a big four door with one person driving it. Yeah, because I think the Honda made a the Honda E is supposed to be one of the cool ones over here, but it's got really short range. I mean, less than 150 miles. Um, but talking about electric cars, what's the next big thing for Magnus? What's the next thing that you're going to do? I know there's a big thing with the celebration of the 10 years from Urban Outlaw, and you've got the um, the museum stuff happening. Uh, what about what what are your plans for the future? Are you about to launch into something new or is it more of the same or change of direction? Well, I'm all about the two-door coupe, the rolls, you know, the new car fever is strong with that. You know, I'm working on a couple of new show ideas, you know, ones like, you know, trying to find fish and chips. We spoke about that. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to make cool shit with cool people and occupy my time in a constructive way. You know, I feel like I'm on a little bit of a roll with the stuff I did with Haggerty, but I still, you know, ultimately there's another show I want to do, which uh, it's just a matter of finding someone to do it with. It's a fine line for me between, you know, shooting shit on your iPhone and then doing something that has a bit more production quality. Like season three of The Big Thing, I produced it myself. I brought the team in and 
So I had full control over it. I realized how much work it is. Like shooting is the easy bit. The challenging bit is the edit, you know, and then doing these historical packages and scoring music. And it just all takes time and energy, which ultimately means you've got to, you know, spend some money on it. And there comes a point where you sort of need to team up with someone who can finance you to go create stuff you want to create that's at a certain level or you just go back to sticking GoPros on your car, which is not something I never actually yeah. did. I've done a lot of other people's shows, you know, like I've done a lot of podcasts and a lot of interviews. So, you know, I kind of know what I want to do and what I don't want to do. And it's just a matter of finding the right team or putting together the right team where I can, you know, I've done a lot of cool stuff that I never documented. I go, why didn't I document that? You know, I mean, Amelia, Amelia, these drives I talk about across Australia and Colombia. Yeah. I never stuck yeah. a camera on any of those cars and created any, I guess you'd call it content, right? You know, I was just in the moment doing it. And then you come back and go, oh, I guess I could have put some GoPros on and figured out how to edit a little film when I'm done, right? It's almost, I'm like a one-man uh, army in the sense of I don't have a team with me, believe it. You know, people think there's a team behind me. It's just me and this iPhone. I think I'm at the point where I need to put together a little team of creatives where they can come along with me on these fun journeys, right? And actually document them. You know, I drove up the hill at Goodwood in a Carrera GT and never even got any footage of it. And, you know, part of me thinks I should ship one of my cars to Europe and do this European tour. I've got all these great events that Europe has. Goodwood Festival of Speed, Classic Le Mans, go to Spa, all-timer GP, and, you know, create just create some driving memories there. But it's just a matter of putting it together. So I've got these ideas to do things like that. But uh, I'll time come with you on all of those. I'll, I'll come with you on all of those. There you go. I mean, <laughs> how hard can it be, right? You know, you see it go on and then figure out, you know, how to edit and put it together. Yeah, my 912 so, is not going to make it. What's that? <laughs> my 912 is not going to make it. Oh, your 996 will. I mean, the 912 will. <laughs> what color is the 912? It's a uh, it's blue. It's not the factory blue. It's it, it's not got matching numbers or anything, which kind of gives you a bit more freedom to do whatever you want with it. Yeah, for and sure. I'm very much like that. It's got the old Hart Fuchs on it, which are really tucked oh, in, so yeah, the nice. offset is really narrow, um, which I quite like. But I like the look with the steels with no caps as well, yeah. with the I slightly like the deeper steel, offset. So I, I don't really know what I want to do with it. But at the same time, you know, it, it's got no seat belts. It's dog leg first. I'm driving it left hand drive, so I can't overtake anything on a country lane. Uh, if I can ever build up enough momentum, that is to yeah. go around yeah. us. Uh, but I love it. I love it. it, it the smell, the heat, because at first I did not know that it was overheating Okay. because the gauge, the temperature gauge didn't work. And right. the only way you, you knew it was overheating is because you felt the heat on the back of your head. Oh, that's really, <laughs> yeah. And it was all because the tinware was missing. So it's the tinware uh, that creates the airflow. So I, I, tons of it was missing. So I went and bought some yeah. more of it, changed the temperature gauge. And it runs much cooler, runs much better. I love being out in it. I love the noise it makes. And it's, you know, it's kind of when you're really thrashing in, I think I'm going to redline it and it might explode, but it's kind of gives you that adrenaline rush and it's making your ears bleed, but I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's engaging. Yeah, absolutely. All of that, you're not even doing 80 miles an hour. Exactly. That's it. I don't, yeah, it's on kilometers an hour. So I don't, I've got to work that out as well. I want to get a new gauge, but anyway, <laughs> should, I've, I've talked way too much. Sorry, guys. We should swap speedos. I've got an American um, three five six with miles per hour speedo. I should just. I thought you were talking about the. I thought you were talking about the other kind of speedo. No, no. 
<laughs> or the budgie smugglers. Yeah, there you go. I got some Union Jack ones. <laughs> oh God, no! You know, we're not swapping those speedos. I don't. I don't have any. Well, I've rambled here. on. Yeah. I've rambled on way too much. Sorry, Mark. We've taken up a lot of your time today, Bengals, and we really appreciate you coming. Yeah, it's been fun. Us. It has been fun. We've been some great insights to you that we haven't heard from other podcasts, which is quite nice. Well, yeah, that'd be different, right? Yeah, it's been great. Well, Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, hopefully I get to meet you guys one of these days. Yeah, well, Pat, we'll yes. somewhere in LA, we'll come knocking on the door. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. If you find yourself out in Cali in downtown LA, stop on by. And when you come back, then well, if you come to the UK, I'll come I might be way. coming in the summer for my birthday. We were supposed to be there for Christmas, actually, and we bailed last minute when whatever the latest variant of COVID was sweeping through around Christmas. So hopefully my tickets are still valid and uh, maybe there in the summer for my birthday. So uh, oh, I'll be trying to find some good fish and chips in Chef. Oh, my God. Oh my <laughs> God. You're more likely to find them there than you are in LA anyway. Yeah, I think so. You're right about that. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, I'm going to let myself go unless there's anything else you need. Uh, all great. Thank you very much oh, for your time. Brilliant. Brilliant. Really Thank appreciate you for your time, Magnus. Magnus. Have a great Cheers, guys. Been emotional. <laughs> Have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye.